and stolen Naboth's vineyard vineyard from him. Uh, and God sets Elijah out on a new mission uh, once again to confront Ahab. So I'm going to start today with 1 Kings 21 uh, and read verses 17 through 24. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have ye murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to the evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and make the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So that's pretty harsh. <laughs> that's, that's quite a... Uh, quite a message so God was silent all through the murder plot we don't we don't see God trying to do anything to stop uh, what uh, Ahab and especially Jezebel were up to Um, so now all these side stories are finished and Elijah comes back into the narrative he was he was largely missing through all that very specific to yeah, he had a very specific uh, uh, job to do. And again, you know, he was sent to face down Ahab. And Ahab says, So you have found me, O my enemy. <laughs> he, he considers Elijah his enemy, but Elijah is there for his good, actually. You know, God is still trying to get Ahab to repent. I mean, truly repent. Um, and uh, Pink says that this phrase, I have found you, is, is sort of to the point of, I have found you out. You know, you, you think you've been doing this surreptitiously and you've been very cleverly scheming here, but I see you. God sees you. And I see what you're doing. 
and I see your heart in it. Uh, so anyway, that's that's uh, uh, Pink's uh, general um, message here. In this chapter that he's written, though, it's actually mostly about taking a hard stand and being uh, rejected. You know, Elijah here is called out to take take the hard stand <coughs> on the truth, and he knows he's going to be rejected, mm-hmm. and, and indeed he is, uh, though we didn't read that far. And Pink is challenging churches and pastors in this, um, and uh, he's got one uh, really good paragraph here on page 268 <clears throat> paragraph 2 at this point we would say to any young man who is seriously con- contemplating entering the ministry abandon such a prospect at once if you are not prepared to be treated with contempt and made as the filth of the world the off scouring of all things which is from 1 Corinthians 4 the public service of Christ is the last place for those who wish to be popular with their fellows. A young minister once complained to an older one, my church is, be- is making a regular doormat of me, to which he received the reply, if the Son of God condescended to become the door, surely it is not beneath you to be made a doormat. <laughs> If you are not prepared for elders and deacons to wipe their feet on you, shun the ministry. And to those already in it, we would say, unless your preaching stirs up strife and brings down persecution and contumacy upon you, there is something seriously lacking in it. If your preaching is the enemy of hypocrisy, of carnality, of worldliness, of empty profession, of all that is contrary to vital godliness then you must be regarded as the enemy of those you oppose. Uh, anybody know what contumacy is? <laughs> C-O-N-T-U, I've lost it, T-U-M-A-C-Y. Contumacy. What? Yeah, something, something bad. All right, well, talk amongst yourself about that chapter while I uh, <laughs> look it up. Look it up. Does it have something to do with the contents? I doubt it. <laughs> Unless your preaching stirs up strife and brings down persecution and contumacy upon you. Like, it's just negative, uh, yeah, probably, negative feedback. Uh, like, probably another another version of persecution. Stubborn refusal to obey authority or fitly involved with the content content of the order or summons of the court. (laughs) Connor. I don't think he necessarily intended to be this way, but there's an implicit warning against the single pastor model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. You know, to, to take upon yourself, you know, the this sort of suffering that only Christ can do alone. Wow. Right. You know, and you, you need other elders around you yeah. to be able to handle a burden like that. Well, you know, even in the priesthood model of high church, at least they have a hierarchy of people above them right. to sort of balance out that burden a little bit. Right. So, well, he makes a statement here that basically sets elders and deacons yeah. as against the pastor. Well, he's yeah. looking at the old Baptist model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's a very good point. You know, if you had a model... 
if there was a church that had a model where there was a board of elders and every elder was a pastor and you know they were all kind of operated on an equal level yeah that might be better earlier in the book he called the uh, papacy satanic i think i can uh, yes words around and call <laughs> yeah that that stuck that so, stuck with you didn't yeah. it yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he doesn't I, I'm, I'm quite sure he did not mean to do that but uh, that's kind of where he where he's at are there any other thoughts about uh, any of that any of that I just went through before I move on uh, we have to know Christ in the, in the fellowship of his suffering I mean, mm-hmm. and that's true of every Christian yeah. uh, he could write a guy of his own experience too mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe so. We're preaching the truth, but I, I mean, there should be a, yeah, as a pastor who is loved by his congregation because he is speaking the truth. I mean, maybe that right. does exist somewhere. Well, John calls for truth and love. Yeah. Uh, we got to find a, a, a match in there. Uh, yeah. Ray Stedman, in, in one of his books, uh, in, in, a, in a chapter about whichever letter of John that is, uh, calls it uh, salt and sugar you know you want a balance of salt and sugar and if too much of either one yeah. is is uh, a bad formula mm-hmm. so truth and love spirit and truth you must you know, worship him in spirit and in truth mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a fine balance if you focus so much on the truth you become self-righteous But as you know, as we go through these monthly Friday night studies, we're going to uh, see this kind of contumacy coming from our political heads, you know, and kind of the social uh, woke police. Uh, so it's it's not it's not always just from your congregation either. It's it's uh, you will get this kind of uh, if you're going to minister the gospel, you're going to get this kind of. Um, uh, blowback, you know, at all different levels. Jesus says it in the, in, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. They're going to get, go out. They're going to hate you. Blessed are you. If they do this while the tree is green, what are they going to do when it is dried out? <laughs> well, and not to, Brent, since you brought up our Friday night studies, you know, we looked this past week at the whole idea of moralistic therapeutic deism and how it has infiltrated the church. Um, this contumacy really fits in well there, right? When, when you're preaching truth and you're preaching scripture, it challenges this, God just wants me to be nice and to be happy. It really challenges that mm-hmm. preconceived understanding of what it means to follow could Christ. You, could you go over that again, that uh, moralistic, I mean, I've heard it several times, which is exactly what the basic understanding of it is that this idea of moralism has infiltrated not just the church but just general society but in, in Christianity the idea is that um, God just simply wants me to be happy and to be nice and, and so instead of being holy right and so uh, following after God in our churches then would be, well, as long as everything is happy and everything is nice, then it's not really my place, regardless of my position in the church, whether that be a fellow member or an elder, to tell you what 
holy living looks like, right? Uh, so challenging, and even the call to repentance is anti-moralistic therapy to deal with them. It's kind of like modern psychiatry, uh, particularly in the area of gayness. Uh, it's not designed to help people deal with their problems. It's more just helping people feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's very much in line with that. And I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of it was an offshoot of that. Mm-hmm. It's tickling the ears. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tickling, tickling, itching ears. And a lot of pastors figure that out. All right, well, let's uh, move on. Uh, somebody could look up Romans 7 14 for me. Uh, we'll start here. I'll, I'm going to reread you verse 20. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So, Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So, sold under sin versus you have sold yourself to sin. Pink uh, goes through uh, this uh, this contrast and in you know the subtle difference between uh, what Ahab is accused of and what Paul says about himself. And this is what he says, sold under sin. This does not mean that the saint gives up himself to be the willing slave of sin, but that he finds himself in the case or experience of a slave, of one whose master requires him to do things against his own inclinations. The literal, literal rendering of the Greek is having been sold under sin, that is, at the fall, in which condition we continue to the end of our earthly course. Sold so as to be under the power of sin, for the old nature is never made holy. The apostle speaks of what he finds himself, what he is before God, and not of what he appeared in the sight of men. His old man was thoroughly opposed to God's will. There was an evil principle in him against which he struggled, from which he longed to be delivered, but which continued to exert its fearful potency. Notwithstanding the grace he had received, he found himself far, far from being perfect and in all respects unable to attain thereunto, though longing after it. It was while measuring himself by the law, which uh, requires perfect love, that he realized how far short he came of it. So, uh, and he goes on a little bit more about that, but... um, uh, in fact, we'll uh, go ahead and whoever, Jim, if you've still got Romans open, uh, go back to uh, verse 614. Same chapter. 614. 614, okay. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so this is uh, yet another uh, subtle move uh, about relationship to sin and so pink goes on and says uh, about that sold under sin and dwelling corruption holds the believer back the more spiritual progress he is enabled to make the more he discovers his handicap 
it is like a man journeying uphill with a heavy load on his back. I think they made a movie out of that. <laughs> uh, the farther he proceeds, the more conscious does he become of the burden. But how is this to be harmonized with sin shall not have dominion over you, which Jim just read? Thus, though indwelling sin tyrannizes the believer, it is by no means it by no means prevails over him totally and completely. Sin reigns over the sinner, having an absolute and undisputed dominion over him, but not so with the saint. Yet it so far plagues, yet it so far plagues as to prevent his attaining unto perfection, which is what he craves. From the standpoint of the new nature, and as God sees him in Christ, the spirit, the believer is spiritual. But from the standpoint of the old nature, and as God sees in himself, he is carnal. As a child of Adam, he is sold under sin. As a man of God, he delights in the law of God after the inward man. That's Romans 7.22. The acts of a slave are indeed his own acts yet not being performed with the full consent of his will and delight of his heart, they are not a fair test of his disposition and desires. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll speak for myself. And when I'm, when I'm struggling with sin, I think those two paragraphs would be very good reading, <laughs> you know, as an encouragement of, you know, what is my relationship to sin now? And it is like a cruel master that it is making me do things that I don't want to do. I guess at that point you have to realize that really we're bond slaves to Christ and a bought purchased by his blood. That's you know, that's pleading that. We have to have that that change of mind that we are no longer bond servants of sin, but bond servants of Christ. Uh, that's that's a hard corner to turn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what repentance means. Changing your mind is not as hard as walking it out properly. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. For the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's hard to be perfect. Well, and that's, and that's what's going to come out about Ahab. You know, he's, he feels very sorry, but there's no change in mm-hmm. his behavior. So he had the sorrow of the world. <laughs> We've got, a, we've got a hungry cat outside. Was it a cat? Okay, so uh, Pink has gone through all of this to make a contrast with Ahab, who uh, is said to have sold himself to sin. So this is what uh, Pink says about Ahab. Vastly different was the case of Ahab from that which we have briefly sketched above. So far from being brought into captivity against his will, he had sold himself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Deliberately and without limit, Ahab wholly gave himself up unto all manner of wickedness in open defiance of the Almighty. As Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness in Second Peter and therefore freely hired himself unto Balak, to curse the people of God. As Judas covered, coveted the silver of the chief priests, sought them out and covenanted to betray the Savior unto them, so this apostate king sold himself to work evil without compunction or reserve. 
His horrible crime in respect of Naboth was no detached act contrary to the general tenor or course of his life, as David's sin in the manner of Uriah had been, but was simply a specimen of his continual rebellion against God. Having sold himself to work evil in the sight of the Lord, as if in contempt and defiance of him, he was openly, constantly, and diligently employed in it as a slave in his master's business. That's a quote from Thomas Scott, who is, I think, uh, a Puritan, but there's like three or four different Thomas Scotts that I looked up that it could have been. I don't know which one. You got to serve somebody. (laughs) Okay, so Ahab sold himself uh, unto evil. So who did he sell himself to? Ultimately, the devil. But who was the (laughs) middleman? His wife was the middleman. Yeah, I noticed that. Yes. She's like Lady Macbeth. And I can say, I, I can I can think of one Ahab too, and you know he he died trying to kill a white whale, <laughs> so <laughs> not exactly the best uh, character either. Ahab's downward spiral began when he joined himself to Jezebel. Uh, if somebody could look up First uh, Corinthians seven, uh, thirty two, thirty three, this really plays out with Ahab. Uh, uh, 32 and 33. So this will played out in a real profound way with Ahab. Um, you know, he was willing to give up and just go sulk because uh, he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard. Uh, you know, and he, he would have been stewing in his sin, you know, because of his covetousness. But it was Jezebel who figured out the way, the, the, the truly evil machinations of, of getting uh, this vineyard. Adam did the same thing. So, uh, uh, but you know, bottom line was Ahab was pleasing himself. You know, he's, this is not an out for him. He, he was still all about pleasing himself. And, and in this particular case, it was attaining this vineyard. Um, so Elijah, again, is boldly calling out sin. Uh, and he lays out the consequences that lay ahead for Ahab. And it's no longer a choice of you know, either you do this or this will happen. Now it's just, this is a done deal. It's interesting for me for him to get to this place where he just confronts it, mm. hook, line, and sinker. He has yeah. to go through his ordeal in the wilderness in the sense where he has to go run down, run away, and get inside a cave and hear the voice of God in a small way, in a small still. I think, I think to strengthen him, to give him the ability to go. This, so, this is life and death right here. Yeah, now uh, we haven't read this far so far, but he does communicate a modem of, modicum of grace to Ahab. Uh, and this is another uh, 
another contrast that we can make with Jonah. You know, Jonah was spent to speak grace, and he desperately wanted judgment to fall. You know, Elijah here is speaking judgment, but he does, along with it comes a little bit of grace, which we'll see in a minute. Um, now, Pink considers Ahab's repentance super, superficial. Um, he doesn't because he doesn't make anything right. He doesn't put away Jezebel. Um, in fact, uh, I think I sh- should. Yeah, let me go ahead and read uh, 27 through the end. So it was when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. So that's, that's the little bit of grace uh, that he receives. Uh, but God... Would yeah. you say that was maybe common grace because it wasn't saving grace here, was it? No, well, I mean, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a delay. All this is a delay. It's God's restraining hand. I mean, would you say? Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure really how to define it uh, because it's just a delay. He doesn't. He doesn't back off on any of it. Uh, you know, God is sometimes in the Old Testament said to repent. Not here. Uh, he doesn't. He, he's not saying that he's uh, uh, going to change his mind about this judgment. Which is horrible stuff. Uh, um, well, his, his actions—he's just point, delaying it. His actions at this point in time, you know, the people that look up to Ahab—they're seeing his actions. So it might be that that period of time is given for everyone that knows Ahab as a, as a possibility of repentance. So everyone that yeah. he surrounded himself with now sees that this guy is laying around and fasting and sitting in sackcloth and ashes. You know, so maybe we should do the same thing. You know, so you don't know yeah. how many people that freed up to uh, actually see God in a real way. Yeah. There's a psalm, and I, I can, I'm terrible at chapter and verse, so I couldn't tell you which one, but uh, a line in there, that because he has mercy, therefore we can fear him. So God is showing some mercy here that they're not... And that means you're not just absolutely doomed. You can find mercy with God. So, you know, repent. So that may have been, you know, the very thing going on. Um, Now, uh, I've got that in the wrong uh, chapter. So, anyway, that's that's the end of chapter 21. Uh, And we will, uh, oh, that's why I have it here. We are going to skip to 2 Kings at this point. But uh, the next chapter uh, introduces a a prophet named Micaiah. And he tells Ahab, this is is a weird little interlude uh, where Ahab is going into battle. He runs into Micaiah. The prophet tells Ahab he will succeed in battle. Ahab says, don't lie to me. Micaiah speaks judgment. At that point, he speaks judgment at Ahab. 
Ahab was right. He was lying to him. <laughs> he was trying to mislead him. Uh, uh, and then he relates an event in, from the heavenlies where an angel is sent to incite Ahab. And uh, this leads to Ahab dying as was prophesied. And the dogs lick his blood. So that's the end of Ahab. The interesting thing is here that the writing prophet Micah was from this period. But he was in Judah. Uh, Ahab is in Israel, the northern kingdom. Micah, Micaiah, could be the same guy. Uh, it's not, that's not said, but it could be the same guy. So, anyway, just some interesting history. Uh, 22, uh, chapter 22, somewhere down there. Sorry. Second Kings? First, first Kings. 22, 13. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not finding the verse, uh, verse 9, maybe. And he's, uh, Ahab is dealing with Jehoshaphat here, who was the king of Judah. So it could have been a prophet from Judah. Or it could have been Micah. Anyway, Second Kings, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Uh, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to require of Baalzebub, the king of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed on to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. Now, Ahaziah is the new king of Israel. And you see a change of how God is going to deal with the king of Israel now. Elijah used to go to Ahab. Now Elijah is just going to intercept his messengers. You know, Ahaziah does not have the privilege of an audience with the prophet of God. So things are going bad <laughs> for, for the uh, uh, kingdom of Israel. Look how off course these guys are in Israel. I mean, you know, worshiping Baal, Zebub, and all these false gods. I mean, it's impressive to me that Israel never had a good king. Yeah. Yeah, that says a lot. The question on people says he fell through a lattice. Yeah. I mean, what condition was he? Well, that's a good question, too. Where was the lattice? So, my guess, he, he was probably leaning back in his chair and, uh, <laughs> and lost his balance in his drunken stupor. Landed on his head and didn't feel it. So this kind of gives us an idea of how God works with nations. And uh, here's a little bit of pink. What has just been pointed out concerns the governmental dealings of God and illustrates an important principle in his ways with a nation by which we mean it treats of that which relates to time and not to eternity, to the workings of divine providence and not to the sphere of salvation. Nations as such have only a temporal existence, though the individuals which comprise them have an eternal destiny. 
The prosperity or adversity of a nation is determined by its attitude and conduct toward God, directly so by those who have his living oracles in their hands, indirectly so with the heathen, in their case being determined by their conduct toward his people. Uh, so, you know, God, I mean, as we are, again, studying on Friday nights once a month, God is not interested in trying to rehabilitate Babylon. But he does deal with it and through it. And Babylon, you know, literal Babylon, was sent to teach a lesson to God's people and to carry them into captivity. So, and in the mix, God apparently saved Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the top banana. Um, but again, by laying him low, you know, uh, into an animalistic state for a while. So, anyway, God, God is not completely withdrawn from the um, activities of the nations. But, uh, indirectly with the heathen. In their case, being determined by their conduct toward his people. God is very jealous of the church. And he will bring the hammer down if you're messing with his church, with his bride. Uh, okay. Next page. Paragraph one. In avowedly Christian countries like Great Britain and the USA, it is the churches which regulate the pulse of the nation. They act as the salt upon the corporate body, and when their, way, and when their ways please the Lord, he gives them favor in the eyes of those round about him. Uh, them. When the Holy Spirit is unhindered, his power is manifested, not only in calling out the elect, but in subduing sin in the non-elect, and by causing the machine of state to support godliness, as was more or less noticeably the case a hundred years ago. Uh, I think I'm going to stop there, because uh, we could talk about Pink's time as being 70 years ago. <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, subduing the non-elect by causing them shame was more or less noticeably the case 70 years ago. <laughs> so, I mean, he thought things were bad in his day. Uh, he, he didn't live to see anything. But we can see, we can see that, you know, from that email I read, you know, is, is Ukraine turning back to the Lord? Is that maybe why they have got the Russians stumped, you know, and, and they can't uh, can't progress? Who's to say? Who is to say? I'm sorry, I came in late. What email are you talking about? Uh, oh, I read an email from my uh, uh, missionary friends in Poland. They've taken in some Ukrainian people, and I'll show you the sure. the, the paragraph that I'm uh, referring to. And just uh, for the sake of historical context, if I'm not mistaken, 100 years from when this was originally published would have been around the ending of the Second Great Awakening. So just throwing that out there. When this was published? 100 years prior oh, to when this was published. Years, okay. So the time he's talking of is the time of Charles Finney and the end of the Second okay. Great Awakening. Yeah. Kind of yeah. So about 10 years before the Civil War. So, I mean, he was he was rightly feeling that things had gone downhill since then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's scratching his head right now. It's a great song by Earl Haggard. He's talking about America's you know, going downhill like a snowball headed for hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, if 
Okay. Well, let, let's uh, let's rush through what I've got here uh, to finish up with. Um, uh, Israel has reached this point now. I mean, Israel is among the heathen here under Ahaziah. Um, so, uh, and of course, in today's world, it's the Israel of God, which would be, uh, you know, the, the measure by how, how God treats the heathen nations, how, how they are dealing with the Israel of God. And uh, Moab rebelling is part of the law of the harvest. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So it's coming, the chickens are coming home to roost. Now this weak, weak sinful kings are, is bringing about rebellion, you know, among the, the, the lands that they control. Uh, inquiring of Beelzebub shows that Ahaziah felt no repentance. Uh, and this is a failure in his God reaction. It's what, what Pink calls it. The fact that he was at home getting drunk, falling through lattices, indicates he was doing nothing about the rebellion. And this is a failing in his king reaction. So he's failing toward God and he's failing toward his subjects. And this is not unlike David, you know, who had not sold his self to sin, but he got into all this trouble with Bathsheba and Uriah because his army was out fighting the battles, but he was sitting home. So apparently this is, this is a moral lesson uh, to leaders. You know, don't, don't profoundly separate yourself from your people. So I'm going to finish up here uh, with just uh, a little bit about uh, Beelzebub. And somebody can look up Matthew 2, 20, 12, 24 for me, please. Uh, Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. It is Baal. Uh, it, is a, it is a form of Baal. And then Zebub is of the flies. Uh, he was the local god of Ekron, which is where Ahaziah was headed. Uh, that's in Philistia. Uh, and it, it was connected with soothsayers. Okay. So, Matthew 12, 24, whoever's got it. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by the the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Right. So, Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, was a pagan deity. He was an idol. But, we know from the gospel that this is, this is actual, actually demon worship. Uh, so Elijah is sent to intercept these messengers uh, and forestall Ahaziah's demon worship. Uh, so at this point, Israel has become completely an unfaithful wife. And the northern kingdom does not have long to go. And when, when it was overtaken by the Assyrians, they were completely absorbed into that culture and they came to be known as Sumerians uh, and we just we watched on TV just last week how the Christ was sent to redeem Sumerians so there is still always a modicum of grace uh, for those who call out to the true and living God the Lord of all creation instead of demons 
So we'll stop there and pick up again next week. So thanks so much. Thank you.